So we've been going through a series on the miracles of Elisha, the miracles of Elisha, and we are all the way to number uh, 14, this is our 14th study in the different miracles of Elisha, and today we're going to be talking about the floating axe head, so that's just the title of our sermon today is the floating axe head. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Jesus, we thank you so much for all our children and all the little ones downstairs and and Lord, for the people that are caring for them and loving them and, and put all this uh, stuff together and, and who serve them every single week. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would be like you, where we'd, we'd bring the children uh, in and not push them away. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for children. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would serve the most humble and the most uh, simple-minded of all people. I pray that you would not make us, uh, you'd help us to not be, uh, high-minded where we think that we're, we're above that, Lord, but that we would pour out our lives for people who can never pay us back, really. Uh, I pray that we would empty ourselves of ourselves and, uh, Lord, just be an empty cup for you to fill with your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we need you so much. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Elisha has been a constant picture for us of the church and how the church is supposed to do ministry. Elisha came after Elijah, and Elijah was a picture of who? Jesus. Good answer, honey. (laughs) Thank you. Jesus. And and so Elisha comes after Elijah. Elijah taken up to heaven in some miraculous way, just like Jesus was taken up into heaven. And we're left here thinking, wow, I wish Elijah was here with all his power. And we're here in the church thinking, wow, I wish Jesus was here in all his power. But what this has been teaching us is that we are just full of fine equipped. In fact, we're more equipped to do the will of God now that we have the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. And this is all these lessons we've been seeing from the life of Elisha shows us how we are to do ministry. And today we're going to see a, 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 that's going to continue in a big way. Um, what does it look like to serve God? Well, what we've seen so far is it's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. There is nothing mundane about serving God. There's nothing boring about serving God. We need to see miracles because that shows that it's God's work being done and it's not just us. You know, you can build a church in your own strength. I could have 500 people here next week. And you know what we, we've talked about it. I just, I say, I put it out there on Twitter or something that we're going we're gonna to cut Nathan in half next week. And, and everyone come and watch and we're going to cut him in half. And we would have so many people here. It would be amazing. I mean, you'd be like, I can't fit. And everyone wants to see the, the, the event. Everyone wants to see that. Maybe not everyone. A lot of people, he says. A lot of people. Maybe not everyone. But it would be, it would be an event. And we would get popular, that's for sure. But see, that is man's way of doing ministry. You you do uh, studies to find out what people like. And you, and you, you dig in to find out what appeals to people. And then you do ministry that way. You see, it's, it's impossible for us to do ministry that's based on miracles. If we're doing, if we're thinking about it in our own, because I can't do miracles. Can you do miracles? Can anyone in here touch something and it turns to gold or just do a miracle? No, we can't do miracles. And yet the church is totally based upon miracles. 
Miracle after miracle after miracle. And people coming to life that were dead and people getting healed that are sick. I mean, this is supposed to be the work of the church. Miracles. And so how do we become a church that looks like how we're supposed to look? Well, we can only do it through the power of God given to us. We cannot do it uh, in ourselves. We can't. And every time we get tempted to do it in our own strength, because that temptation happens all the time, all the time. We, this last week, we were like, we need people to come to our, our little dinner theater that we were, we were having. Okay, and I want to just explain the temptation that, that how this works. Do, am I going to do things God's way or am I going to do things man's way? Obviously, we told people about it. That's not sinful. We posted it on Facebook. We told people, hey, we, we want you to come. But my heart, I'm telling you this right now, my heart wavered. And there were times where I was thinking, what can I do to accomplish what needs to be accomplished here? And then we would pray, and we would pray. And the Lord would give me such great confidence and peace that he was going to take care of it, that he was going to take care of it, that his will was going to be done. We would submit to his will, and, and then I grew in confidence. Hey, it's going to be fine. The Lord's going to take care of it. And you know what? The Lord did take care of it. Now, we didn't have as many people as maybe we wanted to, but the Lord's will was accomplished because the ministry that happened was way bigger than I thought it would be. His, he, he had a bigger thing he was doing than even what I thought was going to happen. And the, the connection, the love that was showed between the kids and the parents and all the people that was here, it was an amazing thing. And I was just wanted to share that because it was a big deal. But it, what we're learning here is that it must be God's power that drives ministry. It can't be our own power. And the church is really boring if there's no miracles. Did you know that? Because all it becomes is entertainment or school. And honestly, the world can out-entertain us, and the world is probably better at doing everything than we are. They're more talented. They're more educated. They have, they're, they're more. They're better than we are. And so what do we have? Only the Holy Spirit and his power. And that's amazing. There are churches that try to entertain, aren't there? And you go there and we're like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I mean, there's pyrotechnics and he's reading the Bible and they auto-tune his voice and you're like, wow, it sounds like a rap song. Well, that's maybe an extreme example, but I've seen it. <clears throat> It, 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 the world sees that and they just think we're losers. <laughs> they just think we're a sad imitation of what they do at the Video Music Awards or whatever. They know how to throw a party. That's their life. They worship it, entertainment. And we don't. Our heart is something totally different. It is we just love Jesus. That's the only way. And we need his miracles and ministry without miracles is boring, and we can't do these miracles. So we need to figure out how, how do we see these supernatural things? And we've been learning about all, uh, different ones all through these miracles, but let's see from the text we have before us here what we can learn. I'll, I'll read the whole thing here. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. 
And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell in the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and he threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So we reached down to his hand and took it. All right, so that's the story. <laughs> one of the, one of the, a, a funny story if you think about it, uh, but you might think, well, what's the lesson in that? Well, let's go ahead and take it verse by verse, and we'll kind of break it down and see what we can learn here. It says, and the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. And here we've seen these guys appear in our stories before, these sons of the prophets. And what this means is these are young preachers who are in Bible college, basically. These are young Bible college students. These are people who had a heart for God. And Elisha kind of ran two, maybe three of these Bible colleges around uh, of Samaria, the, the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel this time is totally pagan. The, the majority of the people do not know God. And so, but you have, he's planted a few of these Bible colleges where he's teaching the young people who do want to know God about the Lord. And uh, in Hebrew, when it says sons of the prophets, it doesn't have anything to do with their lineage, that they were born like their dad was a prophet or something like that. Um, uh, <laughs> that's funny. I'm a sons of the prophet. I, my dad's here today. Hi, dad. And he's a pastor too. And so I'm, I could bet that's not what this is. Uh, <laughs> and I got saved before him anyway. No, just kidding. I don't know. But we, uh, we were... Um, that, that's what this is. Uh, the, uh, running a few Bible colleges, he's teaching the next generation how to know God and how to live by faith and how to do ministry in an ugly land, in a place where they don't love Jesus. Notice, what is his strategy for changing his country? Teaching people about the Lord. Teaching young people about the Lord. Wow. Oh, duh. <laughs> It's a good strategy. Instead of maybe political plans or ideas, maybe let's just teach the young people how to know the Lord and his grace. I think that's a, that could really preach to us. He says, well, the, the, they came to him and they said, see, the place where we dwell is too small for us. So this young little Bible college seems to be growing and they recognize that they're all cramped and sitting on top of each other. So they say, please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us... Make a place where we may dwell. So he answered and said, go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I'll go. So he went with them. And uh, so some people say, well, these, these young people were just trying to get away from Elisha. But if, if you look at the story here, they obviously want him to go with them. He loves going with them. They just want to be together. They just need a little bigger place. So uh, there's nothing wrong with anything that they're desiring here. 
But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? You can underline that in your Bible. Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So we cut off, you can underline that, a stick, these are important words, and he threw it in there, and he made the iron float. And therefore he, and then he said, pick it up yourself. So he reached out his hand and picked it up. There's a couple levels. We're going to take one level, the first level lesson here, and then we're going to go to the next level. The first lesson that we see here is this is a great picture for us of salvation. This is a great picture of salvation. The axe head goes down into what river? The Jordan River. And what did we learn last week and a couple weeks ago? What does the Jordan River represent? Death. It always represents death. Okay? And Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River because he was going to die for us. And he was embracing this calling of death in his life. We've seen the Jordan River parted on several occasions, meaning God bringing people from death into life. We saw that happen with children of Israel. We saw him happen again uh, earlier in our stories with Elisha. And Elisha both parted the Jordan River. Um, And here we have this axe head, this floating axe head that represents a person who is lost in death. This person's life, it's, it's sunk down into death. There's no hope. It has literally disappeared in judgment and death. Remember, the word Jordan means judgment, and uh, it represents death. But in our story, it is made alive again. It's made alive. This axe head is made alive, and it floats, which is impossible. How can it happen? Something being brought back from the depths of death? What are the what? How can this happen? And the answer is only when the, something is cut off. Did you see those words in there? Cut off? He cut off. We're going to follow these clues based on the words we see in here. He cut off. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it says, After 62 weeks, Messiah, who's who? Jesus, shall be what? Cut off. Good job. You guys aren't even there and you know the words. Uh, but not for himself. Why was Jesus crucified? Not because of his own sins. It was for us, right? He was cut off, but not for himself. This miracle of this axe head that we see, it foreshadows what the Messiah could do for all of us and has done for all of us. Why did Jesus come to the earth? It wasn't to be a good example. That wasn't his primary job. That wasn't his calling. It it wasn't to show us how to be humans. I mean, you go and ask liberal uh, scholars out there, why why was Jesus such a big deal? Oh, he's he's a good example of how you can be a good person. And that is such a failure to understand what Jesus was and what he did. It wasn't to teach us to do a bunch of good things. It wasn't even primarily to be a teacher, although he did teach. But that wasn't his primary goal. His primary goal, his primary role was to be killed for us, to be cut off for us, for God to pour out on Jesus, his own son, the wrath that all of our sins 
deserved. All the punishment. And so this prophecy here, this the 69 weeks prophecy in Daniel, it helps us to understand this. Now, in Isaiah chapter 53, we see another reference to this term cut off. Look what it says. Isaiah 53 verse 8. Isaiah 53 verse 8. Speaking of the Messiah, again, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living... For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living. You see, this was always the plan for the Messiah. These verses were here. The Jews knew these verses. So why did they have this idea that the Messiah was going to come and kick Rome's butt? But that's what they thought. They saw the prophecies about the ruling Messiah and the reigning Messiah and the conquering king Messiah, and they liked those ones. Those are exciting. Those are fun. And they forgot about, or they just didn't process all the prophecies about the suffering Messiah, the Messiah who had to be cut off. And yet, these things are here. And now the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit. And for the past 2,000 years, we look back and we see the story of the floating axe head and we're like, oh, that's Jesus. That's totally a picture of Jesus. And then cut off in the Jordan and death. But that was hard for them to understand back then. And furthermore, their hearts were hardened. Now, why were their hearts hardened? Because they didn't understand, they didn't want to admit how sinful they were. That's why the Jews had a hard time, 100%. Jesus said, your heart, your hearts are hard, and it's because you don't understand the gravity of your sin. Now, why did they have such a great idea of themselves? Why did they think so highly of themselves? Because they tried super hard to keep what the law the law legalism crept in and it infected their heart and it had like these fingers that closed all around their heart that kept their hearts from being soft to the truth of sin that they were sinners and the truth about god's loving supply of grace for them this is in the Old Testament. All this about being cut off, all the verses we just read are in the Old Testament. They had these scriptures, but their hearts were hard. And I wonder how many of us go to church week after week after week after week, and it becomes for us legalism, and that legalism grips around our heart, and we lose sight of the fact that we are horrible sinners, and his love softens that. How many of us have hard hearts? The way out of that is to confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to remember what he's done on the cross. Even in the Old Testament, it's pointing to the cross. We have so many things in the New Testament that point back to the cross. When we take communion later today, what are we going to point to? The cross. He says, take the bread, remember me, looking back to the cross until I come again, which is when? In the future. So we have looking back, looking forward, it, it all points to the cross. It's amazing. The Jews had a hard time comprehending how Jesus had to win our forgiveness first before he could come back and rule the world. 
the disciples who walked around with Jesus, they had the, a similar problem. They didn't understand that the real problem wasn't that Rome was terrible, which it was. It was evil and oppressive, and yeah, it was bad, but that wasn't the real problem. It wasn't the government. The problem was that all men were in deep trouble with God because of sin. Sins were the real problem, and God knew this, and he knew our problem long before we did, and, and he became, because he truly loves us, he, he took that sin away. He provided a way to save us through Jesus Christ. First Peter, Peter picks up this theme in First Peter 3.18, when it says, Christ for Christ also suffered for us for sins. He suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, like we know. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, like we know. And he, it says here, was cut off. He was killed, put to death by the flesh for us in our sins to make us alive, the floating axe head, the axe head that comes back from the depths. And the only way to be saved is to accept and believe that, what he did on the cross. The only way to be made alive is faith in Jesus. So do you have that faith in Jesus? Do you believe that he was cut off for you? It changes everything. It changes how we relate to God, and it changes how we relate to each other. It's much easier to forgive someone. It's much easier to love someone when you're made new, when you have a new heart. Okay, so that's the first level. It's a glorious image of the gospel and, and of uh, salvation. Now, the second application that we can draw from this story of the floating accent is much more personal and I think may apply to a lot of us in here. And it's how... It, this the story is going to teach us how we can restore lost blessings. How we can restore lost blessings. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Have you lost confidence in prayer? Have you lost joy in reading the scriptures? Has has reading the Bible become boring or monotonous or a job, a work? Have you lost peace in any way or assurance? Have you lost it just somewhere along the way? I'm not as sure about things as I was before. Or vision. Ah, man, I, I had a vision at one time and now I'm old and I just don't have that vision anymore. Oh, what about boldness? Was there a time in your life where you were more bold to talk about Jesus and the things of God than you are today? Have you lost it? Satan wants to tell each one of you today that those things are lost forever. He wants you to believe that. Oh, that's never coming back. Only pastors read the Bible and smile. 
Only evangelists preach the gospel with boldness. You know, only weirdos like to pray all the time on their knees. Or he'll tell you it's gone forever, or he'll try this strategy. It's not worth trying to get back. Your life is just going to be this way. And this lie that he's selling us is resignation. It's shrinking back in fear and unbelief. It's, it's not believing in the power of God to fix this problem. But then some of us respond in a different way. Some of us are brave. Some of us um, uh, are like, no, I don't accept this. And so Satan, though, he's tricky. And he tricks those people a different way. He, he keys in on that word try. And, and people will be like, okay, I've lost my blessing. So the Bible is super boring to me right now. And, and my prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling and falling right back down to me. So know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try harder. And I'm going to put more effort in. And these try this effort. And Satan comes in and he's like, yeah, that's it. Try harder. Do more. Because he knows that trying never gets those blessings back. He knows that when we try and we fail again and again and again, you know what the end of that cycle is? Burnout. And you guys have known people that have burned out, right? Oh, I followed Jesus for years and I tried my best and I did more than y'all and I was an elder at my church and I read the Bible a hundred times. Well, why are you a jerk now? Why are you lame now? Because I'm burned out and I don't like the church and I don't go to church anymore. It's total flesh. The, the flesh is what's trying. The Bible never says try. That is anti-new covenant ministry. It's not grace. And Satan says, yeah, give your best. Try. Do it all. And it never works. But that's all we know is our flesh. We have to be taught the new covenant. What do you mean Jesus does everything for me and just answers my prayers when I pray in faith? That's something that has to be taught. All we know is flesh. And the terrible consequences of trying and trying more and more so that we get burned out because we can never try hard enough to do a miracle. And don't get me wrong, we need miracles. But they don't come from trying doesn't happen. The axe head never floats by trying harder. It doesn't matter what that axe head does when it's at the bottom of the Jordan in death. It can't float. It can't swim. It is an inanimate object. It doesn't do anything. It's completely dead. So this story, what we see here is, is actually it teaches us how to get these blessings back, no matter how they were lost. So again, do you feel like prayer is, is dead right now? Do you feel like your relationship with the Lord is, is beyond repair right now? Listen carefully. Look at what's illustrated for us here. Number one, talk to your master about it. 
Talk to your master about it. Talk to Jesus about it. Bring it to him. These young students were great because they called out and said, Alas, master, my axe head fell. They don't talk to each other. They go to the one person who they believe can help them. Why do they believe this? Because they believe in God's sufficiency. They believe Elisha represents God, and he does. And so they go to Elisha because they believe in God. They say they talk to him about it. Don't think that you're too busy or that it's too far gone that you need to just resign yourself to live without this blessing. God did not design you to have a boring prayer life, but to have a miraculous prayer life, to see miracles and answers from your prayer. That's how his intention for every single one of you. God did not design, the word of God is supposed to be so thick with speaking to you that, that every day you can't wait to open it. But I know that that's not how it is for a lot of us in here. For a lot of us, it's a, it's a burden and a challenge to find time to do my Bible reading. It's not how it's supposed to be. And there may have been days where you were excited to dive into this. How did it get lost? Well, talk to your master about it. Say, Jesus, I don't want to read my Bible. You know what he's going to say? You sinner! No, he doesn't respond like that. He'll be like, I know, I know. What do you want from me? What do you need? Come to him and talk with him about it. Then li listen to his question. What question did the master give to the student in this? He said, where did it fall? So when you come to Jesus and you're like, I hate reading the Bible, he's like, I know. And then he'll ask you a question. Well, where did it fall? Your blessing. I hate praying, God. It's just a burden to me. I know. Where did it fall? Let that question search you. Let Jesus search you. Open up your heart to him. Because here's the answer. It, it is your fault that you don't like reading the Bible. It is your fault that your prayers stink. It's 100% your fault. God is not at fault. His word is alive and able to cut our heart, and able to bless us. There are blessings to be found and mined in these mountains. But we have fallen. It's on us. So we allow Jesus to search us, to look carefully at that place in your life where your weakness or your lack of faith has caused this blessing to disappear. I don't know where that is for each one of you, but I know when I come to the Lord in humility that he is willing to search my heart. He is willing to show me. And I know what it is. It's either hatred or lust or uh, doubt or something. I know, yep, that's me. That's me. And no one else can ever really see or know 
when you decided to trust your flesh and not the word and not the promises of God. No one, people can't see that on the outside. Only you know in your heart. And that's why this must be done between you and Jesus in a closet or somewhere away from other people. You have to get alone with him. And that's where we begin this process of finding it. Then you confess it. You don't make excuses for it. Well, I trusted in myself and I stole that stuff because I didn't trust you to provide for me. Because you're a big jerk, God. No. You, conf- you, don't hi- you don't argue with him about what's right and wrong. You say, I was wrong in this. And you confess it to him. And don't hide it. Accept all the blame. This is humility. Accept all the blame. Again, God is not to blame. You are. This is why people don't like following Jesus. Did you know that? It's humbling. He is everything. We are nothing, but he makes us his bride and gives us everything that we need. He never designed you to live without these blessings. This is what we got to know. His promise is that you may have a fervent prayer life. You may have deep connection with me and peace and joy and your Bible reading should be amazing. That is his word. And if your life doesn't have that right now, it's wrong. Something's wrong. We got to seek the Lord. Why? You have been adopted as a child of God with all the blessings that go with that. You may have peace, joy, confidence, salvation, and and many other things that the Bible promises, and you should, and if you don't have it right now, something's wrong. Something's wrong with us, exactly. It says, all spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. He's already given them to you. And it's not that there's not suffering appointed to believers. That's not what we're talking. I'm not saying God has promised you a, a happy-go-lucky life. But these deep spiritual promises are yours. In our suffering, we never lose these blessings or these spiritual realities. Never. Ephesians 1.3. Remember when we studied Ephesians? And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, they're already yours. Peace, joy, confidence, salvation, any grace that you need that's from him, he's already given to you. So number one step was talk to your master about it. Number two was listen to his searching question, where did it fall? Number three, cast the wood in. What do you think the wood represents? What was the cross? The cross. Turn with me to 1 Peter, if you would. The cross is the only solution for these lost blessings. The only solution. You're like, I thought you hated step programs, 12-step programs. You're always talking about how that's the only solution is Jesus. Well, yes, the only solution is Jesus. I'm giving us kind of a roadmap to walk down. So it's not really a 12-step program, so... Quit your smugging, Nathan. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Yeah, there's only one solution. It's the cross. God, in his love and power, has given a solution for all your lost blessings. This is great news for us today. Because I can think of lost blessings in my life that I need fixed. 
And I'm super happy that it doesn't depend on me trying hard to get these things back. This is a freedom. This is what God has offered to us, the cross. Jesus did it. Jesus has fixed your problem. It's done. Whether you understand it or not, it's done if you believe it. If you believe in his sufficiency on the cross, what he did, your problem is over. Your only part in the whole process is believing it. Believing it. That's how we apply the work of the accomplished, what was accomplished on the cross to our lost blessing. The solution to a dead devotional life isn't a different book. It isn't reading harder or reading more or reading more sincerely. The solution is the cross. The cross. The solution to a broken marriage isn't giving more or changing more or having an affair or leaving or time alone or more effort. It's the cross. The solution for your lack of peace, for your worry, your fear, your depression, isn't a man-made system or a drug. It's the cross. The solution for your weak prayer life isn't more books on prayer or more time on your knees, more tears, or more flowery words or strategies. It's the cross. The solution of your hatred for people isn't them changing. It's the cross changing you. It makes you alive. It makes you float where you were sunk. It brings life where there was only death. What Jesus did on the cross heals everything because it takes the curse away. The curse is what's the cause of all these problems. You know that. And the cross eliminates the curse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 is where we're turning right now. 1 Peter 2, 24. It says, Who himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And get it, this word tree is the same word translated from Hebrew for stick that we just read, that Elisha cut off the stick and threw it in the water, and that was his solution. The same word is tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The solution for any sickness of spirit, any sinful attitude or anything, is the cross of Jesus. And you say, prove it. Prove it to me. Okay? The resurrection. Jesus was dead. That's a big problem. But then he was alive. You know, being dead doesn't really have a solution. You don't have like a, there's not a 10-step program for how to not be dead anymore. Or else cemeteries would be out of business. But no, death has no solution except for God's power. What he accomplished on the cross leads to resurrection. 
He was dead, then he was alive. The grace of the Father gave him life as he trusted in the word and the promises of his Father. He submitted to the will of his Father. And so can you. You can do that. It's not a work to believe in God's promises. It is faith. Faith is not works. You can believe it. You trust it. And you cast it by faith into the place in your life where you need resurrection. Does your devotion life need some resurrection? You need some new life in reading the Bible in prayer? You believe that his spirit will grant you that resurrection as you ask for it, as though you humble yourself. Again, the Jordan speaks of death. Where did something die in your life? What is something that has died in your life? That's where you need the cross. And when you apply it, God's answer is new life. And that's why Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren, because he intends every single one of us to experience the same resurrection power in life that he did. And he wants us to be walking around, not glowing like he did, but experiencing the same life in our hearts. The glowing is in our hearts. The, the, the magic that he was able to do, whatever you want to call it, it's in our hearts. It's amazing. So we talk to our master about our problem. We listen to his question, where did it fall? We cast the wood in. We, we take the cross and say the cross is the only solution for this problem. Then, number four, we reach out the hand of faith. We reach out the, with the hand of faith. Believe that God is good and that God loves you and then expect him to do a miracle in your heart and in your life. Expect him to do it. Now, some people are like, well, psh, uh, that's presumption. I'm not going to just expect God to do a miracle. Oh, no, yeah, because that's, that's living by faith, and we wouldn't be required to do that or anything, right? Expect him to do a miracle because he's loving and powerful. Expecting God to keep his promises and his word. That's where this is at. And it will be done for you. Your reading of the Bible will be filled with power and real intimacy. If you cast the cross in and you open it up and say, hey, I'm going to read, but not, I'm not trying to get anything. I'm just going to read because the cross, he washed me clean. I believe in what you did on the cross. You gave me the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm expecting you to resurrect my heart as I read your words. Reading the Bible is not about you trying to get something from God. It is God washing your feet, God serving you. He gave you this so that he could bless you. This is not our roadmap or treasure map to try to find treasures from God. You just read and allow his spirit to bless you with peace and joy. And you, I'm telling you, if you just trust him and believe in what he's done on the cross and the resurrection that he promises, when you read the Bible, you will not be able to contain all the blessings that he gives. This week I read a, uh, in the book, 
Desiring God by John Piper. He, he gives a chapter. He actually just prints a whole chapter of George Mueller's narratives where George Mueller talked about what he did for 60 years every single morning. He said, George Mueller said, I found that when I read the word of God to hear God's voice or to draw near to God, that it never worked. I found that my only job every morning was to allow myself to be happy in the Lord. That means he would read his word and he would open it up and just read in the New Testament and he would just look in a small portion and he would just say, Lord, make me happy. Show me something to make me happy, to fill me with joy. And he would read and that, and he wouldn't even pray. I mean, he would pray just a simple blessing, but he wouldn't do prayers. And he, he found that when he would go on his knees for an hour in the morning, it was always, he was just, his mind was a mess. And he's thinking about this and struggling to focus and concentration. Anyone identify with that? Oh, Kurt's like, yeah. Well, he said, the solution is this. Make yourself happy in the Lord first. Look at, go to the word and allow him to feed your soul with joy first so that you're happy in him and you read it and you're like, oh, I can't believe you would do this for me and look at this blessing you've given to me, something I hang on to. And he said before long that that meditating on that and thinking on that and rejoicing in it would lead to prayer that was unhindered, prayer that was intimate, prayer that was powerful. He had no, no problem focusing after that. And his five seconds of, Lord, I just love you so much, was more fruitful in his life than hours of praying intercessor for other people. We must enjoy the Lord first. We need our relationship with the Lord to be receiving. You're not reading the Bible so you change the world. But sometimes I get sucked into thinking that. Lord, I'm going to make a difference in the world today. I'm going to read your word for two hours. That's not it. I am so overjoyed that right now, for me, reading the Bible is like me stepping into a bath and just relaxing and enjoying. And when he brings up sin, I, am, I love being quick to confess, quick to be washed clean. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that dirt. Let me wash that off. Praise the Lord. And it's so much joy. That's what our relationship with God is supposed to be, joy. Effective prayers, uh, uh, confidence that you, uh, you are being used by God in this world and your calling, your vision, your love for others can be real and gentle and never fail. You don't have to ever respond in the flesh at work or in your marriage or with your kids. Jesus is here today and he offers you rest, victory, love, Mercy, forgiveness, power, all of it just given to you like Jesus gave his whole life for the whole world. He gave it freely, right? He's given it to you. He holds nothing back. You never have to earn any of it from God. So why are you living like it's lost? Only because we don't believe. Only because we neglect casting that cross in, believing it's his power, and we come to him with that simple, I'm going to rejoice in you attitude. It's all a gift of God. You can't ever 
ask for something new from the Lord when it's already been given to you. It's already yours. You don't need to go home and say, Lord, give me your peace. Give me your peace. Give me your peace. He's up in heaven saying, oh my gosh, I already gave this to you a long time ago. Just believe and come to me and you'll experience that life. Does this resonate with you guys? You know, I believe that this was from the Lord today, that it was an important thing we needed to hear because I do not want you guys to live one day without peace and the blessings that God has promised you.